This show is part of the Darkmore Podcast Network. To join our community Discord or see more content from our members, visit darkmorepodcasts.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Dragon Mind, a tabletop discussion podcast brought to you by Incendium RPGs. I'm John Tanaka, and we're here to look through the infinite lenses of TTRPGs to discover our best selves through gaming. Today's episode is part of our mini-series on world-building, a huge topic that's impossible to completely cover in a single episode. So, I'm bringing in a variety of voices and perspectives to deepen our understanding of world-building, one piece at a time. Today, I'm talking to Stephanie from our Borrowing Brilliance segments. After listening to our first four episodes, she had a number of questions she wanted to ask me about my perspectives on world building, including the questions I've been asking the guests I've been bringing on. To support this podcast, make sure to drop a five-star review on your app of choice and let us know any insights or questions you have about this episode over on the Darkmore Podcast community discord. So without further ado, let's get started. How are we doing today, John? Doing great. How about you? I am awesome. Are you ready to talk about some world building? Absolutely. Yeah, so I've been listening to you do interviews with other people as the host, you know, finding out all their ideas about world building. And I think through those podcasts, we we have gotten to learn a lot about your views. But I wanted to give you the opportunity to answer your own questions. So I thought it might be fun if I be the interviewer. Uh, And as someone who does not DM, uh, I'm going to ask the questions like a noob, which will hopefully help people that are that are starting out. Uh, with DMing. So if there's anyone that's that's brand new to it or starting to think about it, um, that's kind of the framework that I'm going to come from because I think that would be helpful for people that are looking to to get into it all. One of the things that I've often found myself saying, uh, especially getting to talk to all of the various voices, and I'm not done yet. I'm continuing to still schedule new interviews with uh, different brilliant minds in the TTRPG space, even saying I'm coming at this kind of like a noob, you may surprise yourself by what knowledge you have just from absorbing different worlds from the various media we have. Like there's world building in Harry Potter and Scooby-Doo, even these properties that you wouldn't normally associate with like heavy lore based world building. World building is kind of everywhere. And that's kind of what's cool about it. All right. So the first question is just what does world building mean to you? To me, world building is taking a broader view over the setting of a story by exploring the world beyond. So oftentimes we think about world building in the context of a fantastical story, in which case it's detailing big overarching concepts like a world's history Uh, geography, fantastical physics, technology, even if these bigger things are reflected in small ways in the story. Um, But the big thing is, I think that world building is a broader thing like that. I think when people think about world building, they're thinking of a world unlike ours. 
And one of the things that I've been noticing, because one of my my pastimes has been listening to rewatch podcasts of some of my favorite shows, like, you know, Office Ladies recapping The Office or It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia recapping It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. A lot of times the the writers and the minds behind those shows talk about the world building of that property. So in Office Ladies, they'll often talk about by referencing another branch, we're slowly building the world of the office. And I think that when you broaden your perspective from world building being less about how do I create something new and fantastical that's different from reality, when you think of it more as just creating the rules of the setting, I think that it can honestly take a lot of pressure off because from talking to Jackson from True Sight RPGs, I think a lot of game masters put a lot of pressure on themselves to create something new and original and different. And that pressure can create some unhealthy side effects in terms of if you enjoy the game that you're running or not. All right. I have a couple of clarifying questions that I'm trying to decide which one I want to ask first. Um, I think I'll start with this one. How how do you differentiate between world building and lore? And or are they just like related? Like what what would your answer be to that? So I think lore is specifically the history of what's happened, whereas world building is more just the rules. And I think that those two things can get confused. For example, in Eberron, which is a, a D&D setting, part of the world is the fact that there is a spark rail, meaning that there is this magical train system that can bring you from point A to point B. That is part of the lore. There is lore and history to learn about, you know, how the spark rail was created, whose idea it was, how it's maintained. The lore to me are really all of the details. Whereas to me, world building is what the players can actually use. And I think that what can happen is when lore and world building get confused, the DM ends up doing lore drops where they over explain a lot of details that frankly, the players functionally can't use or care about. Yeah, I started thinking deeper about the word lore and and what it means in the TTRPG sense when I was looking at Pathfinder and there's this massive list of because lore are there are sub categories of lore that you can train in in Pathfinder and it's a huge list and actually in in Pathfinder they define it as known specialized information on a narrow topic so it does sound like it's a little more historical knowledge and factual knowledge and based on what you said let me know if this is correct to try to summarize it so world building is like past present and future that you're theoretically creating throughout the experience where the lore is the past it's the the past history of the setting that you're creating from my experience in how people use the word that's correct because language as much as we would all love to be on the same page with it one of the things I've been finding talking to a lot of different people is their relationship with certain words is unique to them. So I found that when most people talk about lore, yes, it's talking about history, which doesn't mean that you can't use it in the present moment. Pathfinder is a good example of, you know, you have lore proficiencies to use and any history major like my sister can tell you. 
our study of history can give us a lot of context of how to make decisions in the present. But yes, I do think that in the frame of world building, lore has to do with what has happened, whereas world building temporally is a little bit broader than that. Okay. And then also in, in trying to to wrap my head around this concept, because it is it is big and kind of squishy. Um, and the more podcasts I listened to, the more I was like, wait a minute, what is it actually? Um, I did look it up. And in Merriam-Webster, they talk about how world building is used to describe like a component of a work of fiction, kind of like plot or character, but they differentiate it from world setting. So world building emphasizes that the world being created is entirely new. So it sounds like if you're if you have a story that kind of exists in the current world, now you're just creating a setting where world building is is more creating a new fantastical world. I don't know. That's just what this thing says. So and it's just kind of interesting because there I wonder if there's like this sliding scale because the office, while made up. And and like you've talked about on the previous podcast, has some fantastical elements because people get away with things they shouldn't. It it is set in reality, you know, in the current time in in Scranton, Pennsylvania, um, which is very different than Lord of the Rings, which Tolkien created languages and new species and all kinds of stuff. Um, so I want is do would you say that does that make sense that world setting to world building is kind of like this sliding scale? I can understand why they would want to define it like that. Um, again, language evolves over time. And I think that the most helpful way to think about it when I talk to a lot of people is the building part. And the idea is that you're slowly establishing more and more rules. You're building on the rules that you've established over time. So the world of the office is built over the course of nine seasons, where in the first episode, you know that Dwight Schrute is like the annoying guy of the office, quote unquote. But over time, his world gets built out where you learn that he loves Battlestar Galactica, that he drives a Trans Am, that he's a beet farmer. So you learn more about the world through the progression of the story. So I think that the idea that in order to world build, you need to create something completely separate. I do think that that is the common thought behind it, but I don't, I think that's a very restrictive way to think about it. That could also, like Jackson said, lead to the trap of thinking you've got to build a lot of new stuff instead of building on things that your players already know and already have established. In the podcast with Ian, you guys spent a decent amount of time on the idea of suspension of disbelief. And there was the idea of overcoming preconceived notions. Um, and Avatar was a specific example where basically there was some established world building and lore that was in the anime version that they changed when they moved into the the live action. And that didn't sit well. Um, but when we're playing D&D, there is the the preconceived notions that people have about what the D&D world is, especially if you're in a specific world like Eberron or Forgotten Realms. So how do you overcome those preconceived notions when you're adjusting the existing lore and trying to give your own spin, which is what they did in the Avatar movie. So why did it why did it fail? Because it could have just as easily succeeded. Um, so how do you how do you set that up for your players and create something that moves 
through and past what they think they already know. A belief I've held for a while is that your idea doesn't matter as much as its execution. So I've sat at D&D tables where the DM has fallen in love with their own idea. And even if they were to explain it to you, you're like, wow, that sounds very cool. That sounds very engaging. But the execution is what makes it fall flat. Whereas I've also seen the opposite where I've had some pretty terrible ideas. Like, like he and I can't even say them. <laughs> yeah. The character names. So what you're referencing, Stephanie, yes, in my very first session of my latest campaign, which is my most lauded magnum opus, there was a cowboy named Yeehaw and a ninja named Hiya. And I thought that was very funny because I watched a meme. But even that, which completely negated the serious grounded nature I had established for the world, it worked well enough. It was well executed and memorable. So that's my point is that when we're looking at the Avatar example, it is the perfect example of how they made a slight rules adjustment to what you would expect. And the execution was awful. The reason they changed the lore was because of the special effects limitations that they were developing under. All right. So the next general question that you've been asking everyone that I would like to hear your answer to is why does world building matter? So again, this comes off of execution, but world building, assuming it's being done well, reinforces for the players that their choices matter. Whether the impacts are big or small, knowing that their character's participation in events has somehow changed the world is often what motivates players to return to an ongoing story. So if I were to run a one shot, ultimately, I'm not sure the world building would matter relative to the player's enjoyment. Usually with the structure of a one shot, players don't have the expectation that they need to have this big grand impact on the world. And even in an ongoing campaign, that's not necessarily the case. In which case, you don't need to sit there telling the players about the cool world building that you've done in the background. However, I have found that I can't think of an example of a long running game where there is not some kind of world building being done through the course of it. I found that if the game is too episodic and there's no continuity, then the game eventually fizzles because the players don't feel like they're meaningfully contributing. When you can strike that Goldilocks balance of giving the players enough lore that they can work with it, and they can see and feel how their choices have meaningfully impacted the world for better or for worse. Because I do know there are tables that like evil campaigns where they may dominate the world or something like that. I find that that's what gets players to come back hungry for more gameplay. So I think that answered like a follow-up question I had on that Um, from, especially when Jackson was talking about world building being a trap, which I totally understood where he was coming from. And I think you also clarified well, but initially it, it popped the question into my head of, is it possible to not world build? And what would that even look like? Because you have to have some kind of setting. There has to be something. Um, but I think you just clarified that it would be an episodic kind of closed. But even then, aren't you like, if, if you're, 
if you're doing an episodic thing that's closed in a dungeon, you're still setting up and building the world of that little dungeon. It's just a tinier world. So it it's it doesn't like world building has to be involved one way or another, right? Yeah, I think that if you broaden the definition enough, you could make an argument that you're always world building as the players discover, even if let's say the entire session takes place in one room where you have to like, it's like a whodunit, you have to investigate. You're learning, you're building the world of each NPC and their motivations and stuff. I I do think that can muddle the helpfulness of the conversation in that when most GMs think about world building, they really are thinking of the, the broader scope of the setting beyond the immediate location. So because that's where most people are starting from, that's what I tend to speak to. But I do think there is a difference in terms of world building and world setting, like you had mentioned earlier. So this is why I don't play in Forgotten Realms. World setting is the players have already done all of their research ahead of time in terms of the lore, the timeline, the little political factions or whatever. There's nothing to build or discover if the players know everything about the setting before you even start playing. In that way, it is kind of possible to play a game without any world building if the players already have educated themselves to everything about the setting. World building is game after game. You're learning something new about the broader systems that are existing in the world. Okay, so from from all of the podcasts and your answer just now, it sounds like world building matters most from a looking at the present world and also the future that's being created more than that past lore creation. Um, so it's the the collaborative engagement and immersion that matters most more than than just the DM sitting in their little cave, you know, in the basement building this magical world and then letting people come experience it. I highly agree. I'm going to muddle it a little bit, but I'm hopefully going to clarify it on the other end. I do think past and historical events matter as long as they inform the present and future decisions of the players. So I found that I was most bored listening to intricate lore drops when it'd be like, you discover that the denizens of this abandoned temple were blown up by a magical ritual and then they're describing the design release of the sculptures on each individual Doric column and then it's like all right how does that matter to us now like is it someone's trying to redo this ritual it's like oh no no that's just world building that's just part of the lore in that case I think that where DMs get caught up is they think that by doing that they're immersing their players because they're using such intricate language in order to get the players feeling like they're really there. Whereas I found that players are most engaged and immersed when they're making decisions and playing the game. So the a good example of that I can think of is we had played a session of Gearus that took place in a theater and the players had watched <laughs> this play that was a reenactment of a historical event of a village being destroyed by a plague. And at the time, the players had been trained to, this is a lore drop, I can ignore those details. But it turns out that the details of that historical event were relevant because the director of that play was trying to 
reenact that same tragedy in the here and now. So it's an example of how, yes, there was a historical thing, but that was to inform the players about their present decision-making. All right. So the next question you've been asking people is some examples of strong world building, which um, you guys, you've talked a lot with other people in your podcast. I do want to hear yours, but first I, I have a question off of that. And isn't every successful movie show book video game an example of good world building like can you have an awesome book or movie or medium whatever it is that doesn't create a world that people can immerse and engage in i think the distinction would be how recognizable the immersion is based off of the world building so again, if I were to bring on a random GM that I met and I said, let's talk about world building. Isn't The Office a great example of world building? That is such a counterintuitive example. Yes, there is an established continuity. Yes, you can immerse yourself in the setting. Yes, there are rules that you learn more and more so each and every episode. And it's not a very recognizable example of world building because the world building is so much more subtle. Okay, I think I, I think that makes sense. So um, basically, you've got some things where they just sort of world set enough to get you into it. And then the focus is plot and character, as opposed to so like Ted Lasso is, you know, amazing characters, amazing storylines, but the the world is just you know, soccer in England. It's not it's not that big of a deal where, uh, you know, obviously the the cliche classic one is, you know, Lord of the Rings, where there's an immense amount of world building that launched so much. I mean, Tolkien stuff changed the course of, of fantasy forever. So that's hugely influential. So that would be strong world building versus not worrying about the world building, just sort of world setting a little bit. Cool, 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 cool. That was a helpful distinction. So what what are, are your favorite examples of strong world building? When it comes to giving these examples, I do want to preface it by saying, to me, not only are these, in my opinion, great examples of world building, they're great examples of accessibility. And so where I would criticize Lord of the Rings is its accessibility. So yes, there is a lot of deep lore in Lord of the Rings. I have watched the three movies multiple times. I have not read the books, but in terms of accessibility and the ease of the reader to process everything there's a lot going on and it makes it so it's it's almost like it feels like work <laughs> rather than just sitting back and immersing yourself so my first really big example and the model that i still use in terms of linking all my games continuity is the marvel cinematic universe i think that it's a very obvious example that not enough people talk about but movie to movie, it does show how things are interconnected and relevant and the decisions of a character three movies ago on the other side of the world are having ripple effects and consequences and impacts. I think what's interesting about that one, too, is some of the movies have a very large impact on the greater story and others you just there's like this one artifact or this one little piece that sort of fills in a gap. So it's a great standalone movie, but then there's this little connecting piece. Like we did a, um, we, I think it was a spontaneous Gears episode. Like we had a, a day off cause of snow or something and we all played and it, we brought new characters and it was set like 
two years or something before, you know, our current time that we're playing in. And we had this whole mission that was really kind of unrelated to everything else. But then it turned out that the package we were delivering ended up being a major artifact in the the greater story. So it did nothing to impact that greater story, but there was that little, um, you know, Easter egg of something that, that was part of the larger story. I think the MCU does a good job of that too. And that's a, a way that DMs can have these little nuggets, but not everything has to be part of the greater campaign because that can be frustrating. Sometimes you just want a closed loop that you can enjoy, but it's nice when it still has this small connection. It still feels meaningful. Yeah. So two things off of that. First, those kind of closed loop, smaller scale stories tend to be the MCU movies I like better because even though in terms of world scope, they're very kind of small in terms of how personally impactful they are, they tend to hit a lot deeper from a character place. So Spider-Man Homecoming is a great example of how Peter Parker got a taste of what it was like to be an Avenger and be a big star. But now he has to go back to being his friendly neighborhood superhero and just another teenager. The other thing that you brought up that I think I discovered through my latest campaign and as I've watched more and more game masters struggle to keep up ongoing campaigns I cannot stress this enough part of the brilliance of the Marvel Cinematic Universe is not that it's just connected it's that the films offer a closed story loop which allows the audience to rest in between movies so when you watch Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness Yes, it's a sequel. You do have to watch the first one to kind of get everything going in this one. But at the end of the day, that story loop, that hero's journey is temporarily closed, even though you do have a tease of what's coming next. Anticipation can be greater than participation. And so one of the MCU's biggest mistakes is last year they released too much. There were too many TV shows. There were too many movies. It was actually exhausting to participate. And so I, I find that one of the dangers of running a weekly game with like that's like two hours a piece, it eventually gets exhausting. And that's why ultimately it becomes easier to start prioritizing other things because it's like, well, this is a weekly game. I can come back to it. And those things build and soon the game's done. Whereas, you know, we run Gearus maybe every six weeks or so, but man, everyone is like chomping at the bit once game day has come up because they've, they're looking forward to it and they can know that there's going to be some kind of resolution at the end of the session. Yeah, there's rest for both player and character because I know when I go into a new episode, whatever, of Gearus, that I don't have to remember the exact state, time, what happened literally a minute before in the game world. If Zoe had time to go... I don't know, just be a human in Rand in the capital city that you have set up. Um, it, She just got to go 
do things. So there was time for her to rest. And honestly, there was time for her to forget some of the details too, just like I do as a player. So there was a little bit of, there, there's that space and that, that rest and recharge, I think is really valuable um, as the player coming in that my character is in the same place where she also rested and recharged from the last experience and had some time to think and process it. So now I can come into it fresh and in the same exact state as my character where when the campaign goes back to back to back it starts like you said there's a higher barrier to entry to go into each session because I'm having to remember who I was who my character was and what exactly just happened again literally 60 seconds before I stepped in you know the, my character froze in time but I didn't which we've talked about a whole bunch before yeah, in video game design, there is a, a lens of study about the player's connection to their in-game avatar. So, for example, right now I'm playing the Resident Evil 4 remake, and what makes that game survival horror isn't just that the enemies look scary or that the music is scary, but when your character like gets hit with a knife, it's not just like a cut like in a fantasy game. It's like, it's brutal. And they take time to show how you're getting cleaved in and what part of your muscles are starting to show. It's really gross. And because of that, there is a different attention to detail of not wanting to get wounded. Whereas if I'm playing The Witcher, it doesn't really matter as much. Geralt will go, ah, and then he'll kind of like roll away or whatever. So the idea that as from a game mastering lens, your player's world is their character. And so the more that they can feed, you can set up the environment that they feel like they are authentically representing their character, the more they'll learn to fall in love with the role playing. And a lot of times they'll experience the depth that a lot of game masters say they want. And the reason I say it like that is because I've talked to a lot of game masters that say, this is what I want out of my game. But then they will not set up the environment to make those things happen because I don't know if it's whether they feel that's now not authentic D&D or because they've convinced themselves that there's something that they're going to lose by setting it up that way. But that's a struggle I've had time and time again in various conversations with DMs is it's not just about the game. It's not just about the story. It's about everything. It's about the environment, where you're sitting, how you're communicating. Like, and by that, I mean, like, are you speaking out loud versus typing? Like, we've talked about that a lot on Borrowing Brilliance, but it does show up again in the world building lens. What you just said about how your player's world is their character, I think that's a really key thing for DMs to remember to avoid the lore that's why lore drops don't work because just like we as humans only perceive the world through our own uh, framework of experiences and knowledge we're experiencing the DD world that we're playing in exactly the same so it's coming it's always coming from this place of why does this matter to me and my character and also why does this matter to my friends' characters as well, because you you care about your other party members just like you care about your family and friends in the in the real world. But it's all a, it's that relational part. So unless someone is just really excited for the theater of the game, 
um, which some people are, and that's cool. And they'll like the lore drop because they're excited by the theater of it. Um, but for most people, the DM always needs to be answering the question of why does this matter to my player? You know, how is this going to affect their character and their understanding and connection to the gameplay? Yeah. So that was, I think that was really a, a really powerful, insightful thing for DMs to remember is your player's world is their character. So another example I want to bring up that I think actually fits how D&D is typically played a little bit better is actually Dragon Ball. This is another one where most people don't think of Dragon Ball Z as particularly intricate world building. They think of it as shirtless, muscly guys screaming at each other and firing energy blasts. But the reason I want to highlight it is because if you start with Dragon Ball, like the original manga with kid goku and you start reading through or watching through dragon ball dragon ball z akira toriyama has said i just make it up as i go so whereas the mcu is this carefully crafted engineered experience that is linked all the way through and i think a lot of gms think they have to do that dragon ball was i want to do a silly comic with fart jokes and it'll have some kind of vague journey to the west storyline but it won't be more than than seven books and i mean dragon ball z in its original run has 42 so because he didn't take the world too seriously he was able to play with things make it up i mean goku's entire history as an alien saiyan is literally superman like if you just look at you know goku's from a warrior race whose planet was destroyed but he was the last survivor of his species sent to earth on a spaceship like you can literally watch where it's like, yep, that's Superman. And then Frieza's design is based off of Alien from Aliens. And he just let whatever was cool to him at the time go into his work in a unique way because, yes, all these things have been done before. But when you do it, it will be personal. You end up with this incredibly influential, culturally relevant piece of art because he was just making it up as he goes. So for world building... Yes, it can matter, but part of it is also that doesn't mean it has to be all figured out at the very beginning of it. A counterexample to this that also is being pulled off very well, it's actually still going on, is the latest mobile suit Gundam, which is the Witch from Mercury, which has this very slow burn kind of world building, and it refuses to answer all of the viewers' questions all at the same time. And I, I think that restraint is another really key technique when it comes to GMs. GMs get so excited about the hours and hours of writing they've done that as soon as it's like, what's that stained window? They're like, well, it depicts the fall of the gods. And they go into this huge like hour long rail because they're just so excited to share. There were definitely questions a lot of viewers have while watching uh, Witch from Mercury where they're, they're going, wait a minute. These guys are in a school for giant robots that have laser cannons. That doesn't seem very safe. And then it turns out that, well, there are limiters on the laser rifle. So if they actually hit you, you're not in danger. So now that there is a bad guy that turned off that limiter so that their weapons are lethal, all of a sudden you could see it in the characters' faces. That was never something that was explained. It was something that was showed and then finally revealed of, oh yeah, 
there are limiters on the laser weapons. They were never really in danger, but you actually didn't know that as an audience member until they pointed it out. In that example, you talked about showing rather than telling. And I think that's a good thing for for DMs to remember, because if there's too many words, if you're if you're dropping too much lore, um, especially audibly, it, it's going to be harder for your players to process and immerse in. So we've talked about the three different, you know, learning styles. And obviously everyone has all of them, but some people lean a little more in in one direction or the other, or one will be a gateway. So like for me, the gateway is visual. Like obviously I can learn audibly, but I do better if there's the visual stuff there. Um, so finding ways to to show rather than tell. So whether it's the use of minis or finding cool pictures and you can take care of a five minute description in one picture, you know, even if it's not the greatest picture, even if you hand drew it yourself and it's stick figures, you know, you can still get the point across quickly. I think maps are an excellent resource. So, and I, I wanted to share, um, and this is kind of a top of mind reference, but in terms of strong world building, um, I, we've been watching The Expanse recently. It's like a sci-fi show. Um, I, I, it's, it was like, I think it's over. There's like six seasons. I don't think they're making them anymore, but it's on Amazon Prime. And I found that it took me a while to kind of get super hooked by particular characters or even the plot, but the Foley sound art and the sets are amazing i don't know how much like i don't know how big the budget was for this show but i'm so, i was so visually and audibly impressed from the beginning that hooked me in and now in season two i'm really starting to fall in love with certain characters and and the plot is getting more and more engaging and interesting um but i think just reminding yourself that that a, a picture you know, can say a thousand words um, and, and adding even just little sound effects, even if it's you making them or facial expressions of NPCs or whatever, that can add a lot without using a whole lot of words. It can be much more concise. That actually did remind me of something that I didn't realize I had done, but looking back, it was very intentional, which is designing the soundscape of your environment and what i mean by that is when we used to play at quester's way and there was zumba going on that was a certain environment there was only so much that the gm could do to immerse us into the world that being said playing music that's like say like the fantasy soundtrack while there's zumba blasting that was more distracting than it was immersive if you have the opportunity to control the sound environment of your game, being intentioned with what kind of music you play can be incredibly powerful. Powerful enough that I, I never thought of this as a good world building example, but it's an excellent sound design example is uh, the anime racing series Initial D. The plot is kind of dumb. The cars are kind of cool. But the reason I find that show so engaging is its soundtrack is kick ass. And it is all I listen to in my car because it is just that hype. And I sometimes use it for my D&D &D combats as well. But that kind of upbeat techno soundtrack is going to give a very different feel 
than kind of like a, a quick improv jazz, you know, bar fight feel, which is also going to be different than the epic angel choir of, oh God, they're the bad guys, super strong kind of music. So if your environment allows for it and it's not going to be a new distraction, then being intentioned with your music design can go a long way in terms of facilitating a great game. And I do want to point out, you don't have a huge soundtrack that you use but what that's done is it's created associations so there is certain music like there's i think a song you use for battle music um and so when i hear that sound it's like whoa we're rolling for initiative you know and then there's there's certain music that you use when it's time for us to socialize and and role play and go into that mode and you've actually created like this physio uh, physiological or psychological trigger that puts me into the right state. And then whenever you're doing a recap, what's the song you play? Is it Carry On My Wayward Son? Yes, by Kansas. And at this point, it's hilarious. And we're like, we're waiting for it. We're anticipating it. So by using a, a limited soundtrack, you've helped us get into the mood faster for the type of gameplay that we're about to do. So it literally helps turn our brains on to what's coming next and, and what mode of play, how we're supposed to think and interact in that section of play. Well, Grimton, Melinda and Ulrich are gone. We're in a new unfamiliar land of Kolgafir. What's our first move? Polaris, I'm not too certain, but I did hear Fishbelly talking about something. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. With the Warlord's half-sister in a meeting. Yeah, that's about the only lead we have so far. We haven't been here long. Might be worth checking out. Seems like a plan to me. Join us as our party explores an unforgiving region of the cusp and allies with new party members in Arc 3 of Advantage, a 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons audio drama focused on storytelling and character development and the Darkmoor Podcast Network. Find us in your podcast app. So yes, I use Carry On My Wayward Son for season finales because that's what they did on Supernatural to talk about a very specific detail. So like I said, I've been playing the Resident Evil 4 remake. One of the things that's different between the remake and the original game is that the original game, obviously survival horror, a lot of dangers. Whenever you'd enter a save room, though, you'd get this very calming music that almost let you know this is a safe place where there's not going to be monsters that attack you or anything. Whereas in the remake, that same music doesn't play until you actually like use the typewriter. And it just gives a different feel for the game. You feel like you're still in danger, even when you're actually not, when you're in like a safe room. So... A lot of times I find that I try to let my players know, don't expect any combat, don't expect any traps, even if we're in exploration because of the music that I'm playing. It's not until it's like foreboding music where now it's asking the characters to be more attentive, to be more careful. Which is exactly what they do in movies. You know, they trigger you in a sensory way first. And then like, you know when the jump scare is coming or that one is going to come, but you don't know exactly when it's happening, but they give you, they kind of raise the tension first. They start to dial it up. And for GMs that do use music, just know 
the best way to make your players on edge is to turn off the music and let there just be silence. But uh, but yeah, that is another great way to convey your world without necessarily having to talk a lot about it. All right, so I got a lot of a lot of questions I want to ask you about these next broad questions. But the first one, uh, in the broad sense, uh, when it comes to world building, thinking about TTRPGs, where does it start for you? So I heard this advice from the YouTube channel Taking 20, and it revolutionized my view on world building in a game environment. Figure out the gameplay you want your players to experience and let that inform your world building. So in a D&D environment, if it's more kick down the door, fight the monsters, don't worry about the complex political dynamics between larger nations. If you want it to be a world-ending crisis, well, don't worry about the exact details of every little dungeon. Have the world match the experience that you want the players to have. Okay, so basically your world-building matches in scope, the scope you're playing at, which makes obvious sense, but I think it could be easy to miss. A good example of that is for Gearus. Originally, I did not want a larger connected story. I wanted the ability to just say, well, today we'll do a desert adventure. Today we'll do an adventure in the Arctic. I wanted there to be the ability to, for me as the DM, to have wildly different environments that my players could play in. So it makes sense that there's a train that can just bring them there instead of having to put off the fun part by saying, well, on day one of your travels, is there a random encounter? So with Michael uh, in the second world building interview you did um you guys talked about matching the logic and the rules to the world that you want to create um and it is interesting with ttrpgs how the the rules the gameplay rules have such a role in creating the world and i guess there's that type of thing when you're looking at you know something like avatar the last bender there are rules that they play by but we are looking mechanically a lot deeper at those things because we are literally using the rules to create the experience so how did you set up gearus to match the the logic and rules to the world that you wanted to create so can you give us like an example of like a specific choice you made where i want this aesthetic i want this like lifestyle or culture. So I'm going to use this rule to support that. Yes. So part of Gearus is that it takes place in an industrial age where certain commodities may be easier to come by than they were in the settings past. So because of that, magic items are much easier to acquire. However, they are also more limited in their use. So whereas a flame tongue sword in the Dungeon Master's Guide, as a bonus action, you can activate it and it deals more fire damage. Well, you can pick up a fire gem that can make your weapon attacks deal fire damage, but they have a limited number of charges. A tied example to this is I wanted my players to have to think about each other instead of just themselves. And so because of that, a fire gem can run out of charges, but if somebody can cast a fire spell, they can recharge it by casting that spell on the gem. So the idea is that instead of just what's my best spell so I can do the most damage, it's paying attention to the other players and making sure they can still operate effectively. And if they can, well, now I'm freed up to be able to do extra stuff. But mechanically, that 
choice of I can recharge somebody else or I could cast my own spell encourages a team dynamic as opposed to a self dynamic. Okay, so with Ian, you talked about hard versus soft world building a lot in the the first world building podcast. Um, so how do you or did you um, learn to to calibrate that for your group? Like, how do you recognize how would a DM recognize their own style in that scale of hard versus soft? Um, and what the group seems to be most engaged with the two easy sliding scales how much are you talking how many questions are they asking the more you're talking the more you're establishing slash the more your players are asking for concrete answers chances are your table is more interested in hard world building if the players are okay nodding and accepting things without questioning them chances are it's more into soft world building Oh, because hard world building is they're asking a lot of questions. So they want the details from you. Okay. All right. And then the soft world building. Yeah. Because on the other podcast, I was thinking like soft world building is like where you set it up soft as the DM so that the players can do the hard world building. Oh, that's a, that's interesting. There's like this, there's this interpersonal dynamic of if one's more, if the DM's harder, that means the players have to be softer and vice versa. But then there's also just the general, like there's the one dimensional <laughs> line or two dimensional, whatever. Uh, there's the, the the single line, but then there's the dynamic line. Ah. The classical <laughs> understanding, um, and I know that Ian brought this up with a video by Hello Future Me, is something like Lord of the Rings versus a Studio Ghibli film like Spirited Away. So in Spirited Away, it takes place in a spirit world where physics are loosey-goosey. There are alien creatures walking around. And it's not explained. It's not like there's like a goop creature. And it's like, well, group creatures, here is their mating habits and their culture. And these, this is their beliefs. It's just, nope, it's just a goop creature. So in a lot of ways, I think Star Wars has a lot of soft world building in that you go into the cantina scene, bunch of weird aliens, but you don't really explore them. <laughs> Whereas hard world building would be looking into all of the concrete details as opposed to the overall feeling that it gives you. Yeah, well, I think the interesting thing is the dynamic. So when you're watching the movie, you're just enjoying the movie. So with Star Wars, like you might not, I don't know, some people might go to bed at night being like, where do midichlorians come from? You know, or like, what is the force? You know, before they explained it all, um, when they when they had left it soft. Um, but in D&D, there's the, the interactive nature of it means that as the DM, if you leave it soft, now, you're, now your players, because the whole idea is that you're interacting can be like, wait a minute, what about this? And then as the DM, you can decide how many hard answers to give them versus saying, well, I don't know, what do you think? And now the DM's being soft while the player is doing the hard building. You are absolutely right in that you are looking at what the ideal yin and yang of the relationship is, because I can name some examples where the opposite leads to not ideal outcomes. For example, when the DM does a lot of hard world building and they talk a lot and then the players ask a lot of questions, that's when you spend two hours wondering if the door is trapped instead of just going through it. So the players want 
a lot of concrete answers and the DM has a lot of concrete things to provide, the game doesn't move. <laughs> In the other way, you know, if the DM is really soft and they don't describe a whole lot or they just want a feeling and the players are ready to accept that and just kind of move on, there's also no movement because everything is too soft. So a lot of times when you're looking at that interpersonal dynamic, and I've watched this actually, now that you've mentioned it, a DM that has a lot of good ideas and a lot of hard world building to do their best DMing, they kind of need a table that is soft and ready to just go along with whatever they have planned. Whereas if you have players that love asking questions and asking concrete details, you need a DM that's willing to be malleable and willing to just kind of go along and let them do some of the world building for you. So what mechanical rules support hard versus soft world building? I think it's less of which rules and the amount of rules. So if you want a harder world, you need more rules. If you want a softer world, you need less. So a good example, if we use 5e e, D&D as like a neutral ground, Pathfinder, harder world building. There are so many specific freaking things in even that second edition Pathfinder book, and it hasn't been out as long as 1e where it begs for a harder world building, even building your creature's ancestry. There are so many little options. Every little option is telling you something about the world of the game you'll be playing in. Something like Fate, where it's pretty much, well, make it up as we go along, is a lot softer world building that's more malleable because there aren't as many banks to the river. Uh, the issue with that is it can overflood really easily. <laughs> so... I would say that it has more to do with the amount than like a specific rule or lack of a rule. So when you're running gears for us, how do you decide when it's appropriate to prevent us as the players affecting the world or adding to the lore or building and when it's appropriate to let us contribute and, and add things or ideas to the situation? The honest answer is frustratingly vague, which is I basically ask, is the immediate contribution going to add the most fun or by saying no now, is it going to allow for there to be a lot more fun down the road? I, I don't think that's vague at all. Well, it's vague in that. How do you implement that? Like, how do you determine if it's fun or not? So I do have an example of in Gearus, I wanted things to be a little more grounded. So I had a player try a shenanigan solution to something where they tried to cast spells in weird ways. And I just told them, no, you can't do that. And the reason is I want my players to not just say, well, I have this cantrip, so the, the problem is solved. I want them to actually think through the mechanics of what they're trying to do. So how do you define fun in your game? Because that can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. It could mean, a, you know, a goofy game with people waving ribbons around, you know, or, or it could be from what I know of Gearus, I feel like fun means an immersive story. Um, and it's adding value and contributing to that story and to the players. Age old question. How do you define fun? Everyone defines it a different way. I think the most helpful thing to do is to define it upfront and clearly. So what you just said is part of our reference doc on like page two is how do we define fun in this game environment? So uh, I think I've got meaningful choices 
immersive, memorable storytelling, I will DM the game in a way that makes it easy for my players to remember. And it's going to be a relaxed environment. I don't want there to be unnecessary expenditure of energy just to enjoy yourself. And so that's where something like the typing comes in handy because I found that even at the table, it's so easy to miscommunicate and to not be on the same page. There's unnecessary energy expended in order to just clarify something. Whereas if you can just read what's written, (laughs) everyone is on the same page. Yeah, so looking at your doc, because it's so accessible to us as players, The I mean, there's there's deeper descriptions of each one, but the expectations at the table are clearly laid out and that you set core objectives that were clear for all of us. So they're having relaxed fun, developing an immersive, meaningful narrative and playing fairly, you know, and then you go deeper into how we're going to accomplish it through a bunch of bullet points like clarifying that the games are going to be slower paced, that push to talk on roll 20 is non-negotiable, that we're going to simplify as much as possible, that players can rebuild their characters between every session, that you're going to let that be relaxed fun. If we find that we don't like the way our character is built, then we just come up. Actually, I just did it with Zoe. She was a straight bard up through level 10 and then going to level 11, I started feeling like I wanted to to multi-class. So she has a, an angel friend anyways. So she just went off and did training and stuff. And now she's paladin six bard five, you know, so we created a relaxed, fun story reason why I could recalibrate my character to continue to have the gameplay be relaxed and fun rather than, you know, pinning it all down and being like, nope, you just have to be miserable now (laughs) or dissatisfied. So to go back to your original question of how do I determine when to say no to a contribution and what is fun, basically measure it against those objectives. So if I want there to be a meaningful, immersive narrative, choosing something really silly and wacky as your solution to a puzzle that has a solution, I say no. Because what it does is it pulls players out of the immersion and it makes a lot of their choices feel less meaningful. If you think about it, what is a more satisfying puzzle to solve? One where you make one choice and it's done or one where you have to struggle a little bit, but then you get that aha moment when you figure it out. Uh, Like we struggled with that one where at the theater where you basically gave us the whole plot as the play that was being rehearsed and then it took us like five hours to make that connection (laughs) well and that is something I learned a lot about puzzle design from that session because it took the players too long to figure it out so I when I'm talking about Giris I, I fear that a lot of the times I sound sanctimonious or I sound like I've got it all figured out and no it's I've learned some very valuable lessons that have led to very positive responses from my players that I'd like to share. But a lot of the times I mess up and a lot of the times I learn a lot from how I'm running the game. So just whenever I talk about Gearis as the audience people, please keep that in mind. Yes. Well, I have, I know, and you know that you've gotten, you know, sometimes you come off as arrogant to people. um, But we, if going back to that four agreements, borrowing brilliant 
Billions podcast we did a while back, you know, the the four agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz, you just really, you don't take things personally and you're willing to just move on and learn. So there's can sometimes seem like there's this lack of emotion, but really you're just, you're focused on creating the best experience for yourself and others with whatever you're doing. And you know, you're just not the type of person where the emotions slow that down or get in the way. So it's just like, you're just like, oh, that didn't work. Well, let's try it again. You know, let's do it again a different way. And it doesn't, it doesn't get bogged down by you getting wrapped up. So you keep, you are willing to keep, get like, get creative and innovating and keep practicing until you're good at it. And when you make a mistake, it doesn't cause a misstep. So that makes you, you know, there's a lot of confidence that, that gets projected out of that kind of uh, mindset, but you do, you do pay very close attention to the experience that everyone is having. You don't get self-absorbed in your own ideas. Um, It's just learning and growing through each experience. So one of the broader questions you've been asking everybody is how detailed you go in your world building. We've already kind of answered it, actually, by talking about the hard, soft world building relationship. For me personally, I tend to go much more toward the softer end of the spectrum when it comes to world building. And I start there so that my players can tell me how detailed they would like me to go. I tend to have the most mismatched games with a table of players when they are in the mood for soft world building. So when they're just like, oh, on to the next thing, I'm like, all right, here's another general scene. And they're like, oh, off to the next thing. So I've had a few different games kind of clump up because of that mismatch of styles. So how do you introduce players to your world and your your world building? How much is pre-framed in the reference or setting document versus how much is experienced through the actual gameplay. So this is also assuming this is actually like a a bigger connected campaign as opposed to like just a one shot because one shot, I don't really worry about world building as much. Oh, well, I think it it might be interesting to know the answers to both. So with a one shot, you still need to set some sort of scene you know what what was the thought process you went through in terms of setting up the introduction to your world and what did you feel was important to point out to them very specifically versus allow them um to to figure it out as they went so like ian uh brought up the fact that he has his reference document but then he has a player setting guide so there are things that he has introduced to us to pre-frame us to the world but then there's also other things that we're going to find out over time that he has actually established he's just kind of he's gonna not overwhelm us he's trying to not fire hose us with lore right out of the gate all right so the first part to answering this question is i ask myself how long we're actually going to play here for So if it's a one shot and it's say like six hours, I'm not going to spend more than three preparing the world. I'm going to spend a lot of time on functionally what are the players going to encounter and what kind of decisions are they going to be asked to make. Uh, A good example of this was uh, at Quester's Way, I ran a one shot called Cursed Castle, which was just the castle dungeon from Curse of Strahd. I told the players, gothic horror setting, you're going to a castle. That's all they need to know. 
So now they build characters that can revolve around that theme if they want a horror experience. Maybe they'll build a character that can reasonably be scared. But for for Geras specifically, uh, I cheated in that I built it off of Eberron, which has a lot of established lore already. And it was a setting that interested me. But what I included in the reference doc were the broad regions I would want my players to travel to and some specifics to latch onto, but a lot of it came from the pre-conversations I had with each player before the game. So a lot of people will advise, and I um, agree with this, that you hold a session zero before a long ongoing campaign um, just to set everyone's expectations of what this experience is going to look like, how to define fun, how to set veils and lines so that no, no one is going to have their enjoyment disrupted at the table because of content that you may be interested in introducing. Also, I followed up with each individual player about their character and how they were going to fit in the world. So in terms of how detailed did, do I go, they let me know by how much they wanted to talk. Some conversations were 30 minutes. One conversation was three hours. You and I didn't even have a conversation. It was Aladdin-like street rat, period. <laughs> so you were letting me know how much detail you were interested in from your end by how long the conversation went. All right, so I have three questions that I think it's going to be easier if I just tell you what all three of them are because they're interrelated, um, but I can definitely repeat. So as the DM... How do you recognize, like, what are signals you can look for to recognize when you're over prepping? How do you recognize if you're over lore dumping? Um, and kind of related to that, what are signals that you can look for in your players to recognize whether you're engaging them or you're overwhelming them with either your prep or your lore or or either one of those two things. So recognizing over prepping, recognizing that you're dumping too much lore um, and seeing that in your players. This is advice I got from Jim Davis from WebDM. And again, like taking 20, I held on to this, which is, you know, you're over prepping if you're resenting the process or resenting the choices your players are making because they're not the choices you expected. You know, you're under prepping if you're not able to answer questions that they ask. So if, you know, they ask a fairly standard question and you recognize, wow, I should have prepped an answer to this, make a note of it because you're under prepping. And there's probably a sliding scale to that too, because some people are going to be better impromptu, just coming up with stuff, um, kind of uh, like improv, you know, where other people need a little bit more time. Like I, I usually in the moment, my mind will go blank. So I feel like if I were prepping something, I would definitely need to flesh out a decent amount of it, get a, a pretty clear picture in my head of what's going on so that I can answer those improv questions easier. Where some people like it sounded like Jackson can just go. Like the stuff, the the amount of space he was talking about leaving, um, and I'm sure there's there's like the initial conversations, like the session zero conversations that he has, and then time and space to prep for the site. But he sounded like he left things very open, um, and then was able to creatively move off of that, which is not a skill that everyone's going to have, especially in the moment. Yes, all of these answers are very relative 
to the individual GM. And which is why, you know, in that interview, I touched on the very poorly named Matt Mercer effect, which is no criticism to Matt Mercer. And what happens is a lot of people that watch Critical Role think you have to do it like that rather than recognizing your strengths and playing to them. In terms of are you over lore dumping, the the indicator is the quality and quantity of questions that your players are asking. I would also add, because we do this when we're teaching with with children and adults, um, is looking at their body language. You know, if their eyes are glazing over and they look like they're falling asleep, you might be talking too much and you need to do something to, to engage them more rather than just babbling on about stuff you think is cool. I will say as an addition to that, just remember that we're talking about indicators, not hard answers. So I've had this before where, you know, speaking about a martial arts teaching environment, you you watch a, a teacher and they may say, you know, if someone's arms are crossed, they're angry. And it's like, well, they could be. They could also, that could also just be their posture for listening. That's my dad's. He'll look really grumpy and put off, but it's because he's genuinely interested in the topic. Uh, they could also just be cold. So it's, these are all indicators, but it's not like one-to-one. Yeah, but, yeah. but if your whole table is doing it, if your whole table is lean back, checked out, or if they start looking at their phone, you know, then that might be, because I, I have been in situations with a DM that was not picking up on those cues and they just kind of kept going. So it's, I think it's important to look around the table every 60 seconds or so and just make sure everyone's good. And then, check in but if you just ask like is this okay is this interesting people might be nice and just say yes so you really have to learn to try to pick up on the subtler cues um and the faster you do it the more you can learn it when to pivot and and make sure that you're you know engaging your players regularly they won't mind every once in a while you know i know that i check out every once in a while but for the most part i'm engaged like i said it's a indicator if everyone at your table is doing it, that means you have four to six indicators right there. So it, it has this cumulative effect. But the reason I mentioned the quantity and quality of questions they're asking is because that's something that's easier to document. So the reason I say it like that is we've talked about before that TTRPGs are a space that attract folks with neurodivergence. And so a lot of times they have trouble just picking up on social cues. So while I agree with you that body language and tone and all those things are great, subtle indicators, for some people, it's too subtle. I've had conversations where after the fact, I've said to a GM, did you notice this indicator? And they're like, yeah, they were really engaged. And it's like, nope, (laughs) that was not the indicator they were trying to display. So when you when you're instead able to especially i know some dms that actually record their games they'll record the dialogue and listen back if you can ask you know what kind of questions are they asking are they asking really shallow questions like is this the door to get to the next place (laughs) or are they asking well what does the sigil on the giant's armor mean if i speak giant the that's going to be something that you can almost look to like you get a certain amount of points for And that lets you know if you have that Goldilocks like balance between not too much, but not too little in terms of the lore that you're dishing out. I think that comes back to over time, 
um, the more we've talked about this on Barring Brilliance, but the more you uh, connect with your players, have conversations with them out of game and learn what their individual signals are for, like you said, your dad, like, so you know your dad pretty well. Uh, so you know when to recognize that that he's like uh, having taught your mom for years. I can tell when she's got a thinking face on, you know? So you, as you get to know your players, especially if you're having open conversations um, about the gameplay, you're gonna get the opportunity to, to recognize the, their individual indicators easier. One more tool that just came to mind is feedback surveys. So, you know, you mentioned earlier, players tend to be polite. People don't tend to be jerks. I am an exception to that rule. I tell it as it is. But if they're asking, is everyone having a good time? Is everyone interested? Most people are going to say, yeah. Did you have fun? Yeah, because they want to be polite. Whereas we use a feedback survey now that is a little bit more objective and the questions are phrased in a way that gives them permission to share their true thoughts. Was there a little bit too much combat, not enough or just right? Again, going back to that Goldilocks like sliding scale, what was something you were looking forward to that hasn't happened? And that that's like a yet question, because if it's like, I really wanted to talk to this NPC, we could talk to them next session now. So it's pointing forward rather than, you know, what went well, what went wrong? Those binary kind of things aren't really going to yield a lot of helpful information because you may not get accurate responses because people don't want to hurt your feelings. So the question about techniques is going to be similar. I have a lot of uh, a, a lot of detail. Well, not a lot, but I have, I have several detail, more detailed questions. Um, but just in general, what are some techniques you have for implementing world building in a game session? Your world building will be conveyed through the game mechanics. The mechanics are the underlying systems that will communicate to your players what their choices are. And if you just flavor things and the mechanics disrupt that flavor or narrative, you get ludonarrative dissonance, it's going to ruin the suspension of disbelief for your players. So an example I can think of is there was a long-term campaign I played where we were told the world was dark and unforgiving and dangerous and our characters would always be scraping by. But then there were no mechanics that enforced that and we leveled very quickly. So when we're told this is a dark, dangerous world and our characters are level 10 and we get hit for an attack and it does 10 damage when we have a maximum HP of 140, that's not a dark, dangerous world. You can tell us that the monsters look gross and that there's not a lot of light. The mechanics did not reinforce the kind of world that the DM wanted to present. Another thing is build your world a little bit at a time. This comes back to having restraint. A lot of GMs want to share everything all at once and dripping out the information in a digestible way is how your players are going to remember it. Also, you will need to repeat themes at least seven or eight times minimum before your players will start to remember it. So just because you mentioned the Archdruid's name in session two doesn't mean that the players aren't going to be likely to remember them in session 16. Whereas if every session they're hearing about the Druid Circle and Archdruid Sinan's miraculous powers, well, at some point, they're going to be like, oh, yeah, that archdruid guy with miraculous powers. So the more you repeat, the more you emphasize. 
uh, show rather than tell while paradoxically being as functional with descriptions as possible. This goes back to your lore dump question. Elongated prose pulls players from the game. It doesn't immerse them. The more you talk, the less you're immersing. They get immersed when you have very functional descriptions that let them make choices. The more they're making choices, the more they're engaging. A good example of this is Final Fantasy 13. Groundbreaking graphics for the time. Beautiful animation. The gameplay is you walk in a straight line from point A to point B. So the gameplay was bad relative to the animation and the aesthetic and the music that the game had to offer. The other thing is the more you can get your players contributing with the world, the more they'll feel ownership of it. Ian brings up this example a lot, and it is the tiniest little thing. But there was a scene that you were a part of, too, as a player, Stephanie, where we were on a train and we were introduced to the new mysterious warlock, Raphael. And Ian asked, can my character pick up a pamphlet about the continent's biggest religion? Like it's a pamphlet about joining the church. So I can ask him about his views on religion. And I'm like, sure. And Ian's like, I got to add a pamphlet to the game. So like the more you can let them add little things, especially if they've respected your world by taking the time to actually read the lore that you've given them in a written way, the more they'll feel ownership over it. Yeah, I like Jackson's uh, idea about the basically being able to use inspiration to create a story beat, like create something that would help in the situation. And the uh, the impression I got is that basically, if you come up with something that's creative and thoughtful enough, even if it does highly manipulate the situation, it's okay as long as you put in the effort, you know, and he limits how many times you can do it because you have to burn an inspiration to be able to create a, a world changing or situation changing thing that you're adding in, you know, like a, I think you talked about like a bridge dropping or, or something like that. Um, so also a question that came up uh, in my head as I was listening to Jackson, your interview with Jackson, um, he talks kind of about, uh, tropes or cliches and and things being overused. Uh, and, and now what's interesting is earlier in this, when you were talking about Dragon Ball, you were talking in a positive way about how there was like a, you know, something that was obviously from Superman, something that was obviously from Alien. So when does your world building become cliche or like, how do you use a trope effectively um, versus having the trope create kind of that suspension of disbelief because you're like i know exactly what's happening like where where's that line like how much is too much um and and when is the cliche okay like when how do you how do you make that work i'll start from that end of it which is i think most gms fall into the world building trap when they're trying so hard to subvert expectations that they create new predictable expectations. I find that if you start with something archetypal, recognizable and not fleshed out, and you have players willing to flesh them out, they become personal and unique and original. So an example of this that came up in that interview that we didn't really talk a whole lot about because I had other things I wanted to ask him, was uh, Geras's Magic Academy, the Crucible Academy. So when I thought of that, I thought Magic Academy. 
a place where wizards go to study magic. That was the only idea I had. I had nothing really fleshed out with it. And uh, Patrick, who I, I've had on Dragon Mind for Lens 2, uh, Empty Your Cup, his character had attended the academy. And through dialogue I had with Patrick as a player, he started coming up with classes, faculty, characters, personalities. And it wasn't the setting that made it unique. It was the people that made it unique. So I would say as long as the setting does not get prioritized off of the characters, cliches are fine to use. I think cliches become cliches when the characters become slaves to the the cliched plot or setting. You could have the most generic thing in the world if your players are sarcastically and ironically recognizing the cliche, or if they are somehow in contrast to the cliche. A good example of that is The Witcher, where The Witcher is a dark world that does encourage people to behave criminally. Um, you can get away with a lot of crimes because who's going to catch you? There's only so many guards and they're poorly equipped. Geralt of Rivia chooses to be a hero despite the dark, dreary setting. So I would say your players will, in my experience, no matter how cliched your environment is, your players will bring it to life. And if they're having fun, who cares if it's cliched or not? The only time it's a problem is where you restrict their decision making and expression in service of your idea i think that that's interesting because basically when you're playing a ttrpg you could set up like pirates of the caribbean and just kind of set the stage exactly like that but then because you have input from outside people it it takes on its own life so it's probably one of the few creative outlets where you can literally copy paste but then it ends up becoming something unique again as long as you're giving that uh space you know but like i know i've created jack sparrow-esque characters before but then just the nature of trying to integrate it into a a D, &D world or a campaign or you know into the the class and species uh that are allowed you know it ends up taking on a life of its own so one of the fun things about playing ctrpgs is that um it's a collaboratively creative thing so your tropes uh, naturally take on their own life uh so what tools would you offer to a new dm or an experienced dm if they need it um to learn when and how to let go or relax their grasp on their creative baby so you've spent all this time coming up with something there are things that you're in love with with your world um it's going to naturally happen when especially i'm sure the first time that someone puts a whole lot of effort into creating something um there's going to be that desire uh natural human desire to kind of control a little bit um so what would you recommend for for a dm to learn how to relax that grip so to speak personally for a moment this comparison is going to make sense in a second. Uh, for a long time, I had a really unhealthy relationship with food um, in terms of like the kind of sugars and processed foods I've, I've eaten. It is not as bad as an addiction as many other people face, but in a way, sugar is its own addiction. So learning to overcome that addiction 
cold turkey for most people doesn't work. So in the same way, I feel like it's an apt comparison to having this addiction to world building, this addiction to the control of I am making the decisions of everything happening in this world. When you introduce player characters that have their own ideas, sovereignty, and creative energy, that control 99 times out of 100 is not going to mesh well with them. So you have to kind of wean yourself off the addiction. My recommendation is actually our seven baby steps to masterful game mastering, which is if you're recognizing, man, I want to control everything and I really want to let go a little bit and let my players contribute, do what the MCU does and go small scale first. To bring back the MCU for a second, the reason that that property did it so well and DC did not is because DC tried to go too big too fast. They wanted to start with Justice League and then explore the characters. Marvel explored the characters as individuals, teased that there might be a bigger world, and then brought them together to see how they would bounce off of each other. In the same way, I would recommend that a DM interested in letting go a little bit Start in a controlled, contained, small space environment that you can easily dismiss if you are displeased with the results. And if you're pleased with the results, well, now you can integrate it into the greater tapestry of a story. But start with small, disconnected one-shots where you can play with the idea of letting your players in a little more on the world building. That being said... Always keep in the back of your mind, you can blow it up and start over at any time. So for me, uh, for a while at Quester's Way, I internally prided myself on the fact that there was this loose background continuity through a lot of the games that we would play, like the Monday campaigns that we did, the various one shots, like I mentioned, Cursed Castle, Dragon Heist. There is this loose continuity. When I started Gearus, I blew the whole thing up and said, nope, I'm creating a whole new world. And then over time, it made me actually go back to a lot of the world building I had done at Quester's Way. And because I had given myself permission to start over, I began taking the things that I had liked about the world building from the Quester's Way days and was able to integrate it back in while largely ignoring the parts that I didn't like. Wean yourself off the addiction and... Don't be afraid to just blow it up and start over. All right. Two uh, more quick questions, I think, on technique. Um, If time is an issue, where do you think DMs should focus their their limited time and attention in their world building? I would say not on world building. Like world building is a bigger scope thing. So it requires more time to give it the, the attention that it needs in order to be pulled off well. I would start by getting really good at the technical skills. So being quick to understanding armor class, attack rules, analyzing a monster's stat block, being prepared to make adjustments, picking up on the social cues, like you mentioned earlier. Get good at the technical skills before you create something grand, especially if your chief complaint is, I don't have time to make something grand. That being said, even if you're playing and prepping in smaller bursts, You can always tease something a little bit bigger to bring back the MCU. Every now and again, a movie would end with Thanos being like, I'm going to go get this thing now. So that as your players participate from session to session, they can look forward to a bigger thing when you have the time. I think that the illusion of not having enough time to prep 
is that our life moves in seasons. So just because you don't have time to prep right now doesn't mean you'll never have time to prep. So I would just get really good at the technical skills. And if you are interested in greater world building, do it a little bit at a time, but in a functional way that your players will get to see. All right. So this question you may have kind of already answered when I asked you about letting go of that control, that grasp on your your creative baby. Um, but if time isn't an issue, so if someone has plenty of time to get creative and sit down and, and develop their world, um, how can you allow yourself to essentially over prep without running into the dangers of being over prepped? The answer is our seven baby steps of masterful game mastering. Which is, uh, I actually did this for Gearus too. I did a lot of prep going in for it. And I reconciled with myself at the beginning that a lot of it would change. I started with a lot of prep. And then I held my first session and saw how my players received it. And that informed me about what details to include for the next session. And so I let my players' questions drive where the story would go. We've talked on a few different podcasts about Winkum the Razor Lord and his role as the overarching villain in Geras's first three story arcs. And he was not planned at the outset of being the big villain. He was the villain because my players had kept asking questions and choosing to use their downtime to continue investigating him. So when you have five out of your seven players all wanting to learn more about this one big bad guy, it's a good indicator that that might be the big bad guy that will continue to drive them and you're now safe to do it. I guess the key thing is going back to the four agreements, avoid assumptions. The less assumptive you are about how your players will receive your world building, the happier you'll be in the end. All right. So we're going to end with some lightning round questions that I have for you. These are about you, like more your like personal experience with world building. So my first lightning round question is what is your favorite part of world building? Listening to my players ideas. What moment in game are you most proud of? I've got two. The first one is darker. The second one is lighter. The dark one is when I started playing One Winged Angel, going back to setting the soundscape, and the Razor Lord crashed through the top of the building, and the players were like, oh, we can take him. They didn't take him. The second is when I finally got the chance to have Raphael reemerge as a relevant character when Zoe was in her most distress. Where did you make a mistake in your world building, and how did you adjust, recover, or learn for it for the future? <laughs> so I had been reading Lovecraft and I had been reading the Cthulhu mythos because I felt I should. And I think there was a game that was being thrown together a little quicker than I was ready for. And I'm like, we'll make up a cult of the dreaming one just to just to tease something. And then everyone got super interested and involved. And I was not ready to run that as a faction. And it became super embroiled in the plot. And it also led to the worst boss fight I've ever GM'd, which has been super recent and I'm still trying to recover from. That's hilarious. I had no idea that we weren't supposed to get super attached or like latch onto that. Uh, <laughs> what's a moment you said no to a player world building and why? This comes back to being grounded. One of the sessions I wanted to be a desert adventure where a big part of the storytelling was how difficult desert travel is 
for even the Swift Guard who could be prepared. And one of the players in an Ian-like way had said, oh, I'll just go get a scroll of create food and water. There's obviously a mage that we have access to that can just give us the scroll. And I said, no. In reality, could there probably be a mage of that level? Maybe. But at the time I said no, because I didn't want the players to be able to use magic to just solve the problem and take away that storytelling potential. So it's a thing I'm looking for in creating my new 5e slash Pathfinder based system is not letting a spell slot solve all your problems for you. Why did you say in an Ian-like way? Because Ian had made up this pamphlet that his character was able to use for storytelling. But this player wanted to do something similar where they just come up with a scroll. They just find a scroll. Gotcha. Uh, What's an example of something you thought would matter and didn't? I had a player that had set up an awesome character arc I was very excited about. And there happened to be this serendipitous coincidence where one character that had lost their memory could have been the long lost brother of another character they were searching for, but in a different form. And when I had presented that, the other player said, no, I don't want that to be the story. And so I had thought it would have been a very cool way of closing a story circle but the player just, for whatever reason, didn't want it. Uh, what's an example of something you thought wouldn't matter and actually did in terms of creating the world of Gears? The cult of the dreaming one. Yeah, again. I kind of thought that'd be the answer. <laughs> and then uh, last one, this was actually inspired by Joe talking about deep diving into sailing and mining to set up their games and set up particular sessions. Uh, what is the most interesting rabbit hole you've gone down in terms of like, like real world knowledge, like sailing, um, but to, to add that layer of immersion and world building into any game you've played over the years. Opium. I, oh. uh, in creating Pixie's Poppy, uh, because your character Zoe in the background had been like investigating these drug deals and stuff. So it led me to researching poppy and opium because Julia's character was an apothecary and I needed to think of some ingredient that would end up being beneficial for a community, but was a controlled substance. So her mentor, the alchemist needed this fey pixies poppy to create uh, potions of cure disease for their community. But because Pixie's Poppy is a controlled substance, he didn't have the money to get it from, you know, a legitimate source. So he needed like to buy it on the black market. So I actually did a huge deep dive into Poppy and Opium to set up that event in a way that made it made sense. Well, that, I think that's a fun place to uh, to end it. <laughs> uh, thank you for allowing me to, to grill you on all of those world building questions. I think that was, uh, I hope that was helpful, um, especially to people that are newer DMs or, or thinking about DMing in the future. Thank you everyone for listening to today's episode. Dragon Mind is brought to you by Incendium RPGs. For more content by us, check out our YouTube channel with the link in the description below. 
Our theme song, J-Pop, is brought to you by Fezlian Studios, and you can check out more of their awesome work at fezlianstudios.com. This podcast is also a proud member of the Darkmoor Podcast Network. To discover more excellent TTRPG content like this, head to darkmoorpodcasts.com. Have an awesome day and an awesome time at the table. Bye-bye now. I think the core of Dungeons & Dragons is puzzle and encounter design. I'll draw from favorite movies, video games, books, anything to create a -a one-of-a-kind play experience. When you start with a solid framework, all you need is to grab your best friends and hilarity ensues naturally. I'm Sully, dungeon master and host of the podcast How Friends Roll, a 5th edition actual play podcast of micro-campaigns featuring a rotating cast of characters. Come join our table. How Friends Roll is available wherever you get your podcasts.